Chapter Sixteen of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Pathless Wood. Being very late in the evening when I arrived at Alnwick, I remained there for the night, and it was not until noon of the next day that I once more reached Ravensdene Court. Lorrimore was there; he had come over to lunch, and for the moment I hoped. He had brought some news from his Chinese servant. But he had heard nothing of Wing since his departure. It would scarcely be Wing's method, he said, to communicate with him by letter. When he had anything to tell, he would either return or act of his own initiative upon his acquired information. The way of the Chinaman, he remarked, with a knowing look at Mr. Raven, was dark, subtle, and not easily understandable to Western minds. "'And yourself, Middlebrook?' asked Mr. Raven. "'What did the detective want, and what have you found out?' I told them the whole story as we sat at lunch. They were all deeply absorbed, but no one so much as Mr. Cazalet, who, true to his principle of doing no more than crumbling a dry biscuit and sipping a glass or two of sherry at that hour, gave my tale of the doings at Blythe and Hull his undivided attention.' and when he had heard me out he slipped away in silence evidently very thoughtful and disappeared into the library so there it all is i said in conclusion and if anybody can make head or tail of it and get a definite and dependable theory i am sure that scarterfield from a professional standpoint will be glad to hear whatever can be said it seems to me that scarterfield is on the high road to a very respectable theory already remarked lorrimore so are you the thing to me appears to be fairly plain it starts out with the association of baxter and the dishonest bank manager the bank manager left in charge of this old-fashioned bank at blythe where any supervision of his doings was no doubt pretty slack and where he was of course fully trusted examines the nature of the various matters committed to his care, and finds out the contents of those forest-burned chests. He then enters into a conspiracy with Baxter for purloining them and some other valuables, those jewels you mentioned, Middlebrook. It would not be a difficult thing to get them away from the bank premises without anyone knowing. Then the two conspirators secrete them in a safe and unlikely place, easily accessible i take it from the sea probably they meant to remove them for good and all just before the dishonest bank manager's temporary residence in the town came to an end but his fatal accident occurs then master baxter is placed in a nice fix he knows that his fellow criminal's sudden death will necessarily lead to some examination more or less thorough of the effects at the bank that examination, to be sure, was made, but Baxter has gone, cleared out, vanished, before the result is known. He may have had an idea, we can only guess at it, that suspicion would fall on him. Anyway, he leaves the town and is never seen in or near it again. If this theory is the true one, things seem pretty clear up to this point. Of course, said I, it is theory, all supposition, you know right assented lorrimore but let us theorize a bit further i am you see merely following out the train of thought which seems to have been set up in you and in scarterfield baxter disappears 
nobody knows where he's gone there is a veil drawn over a certain period pretty thickly but we who have had occasion to try to pierce it have seen so we think through certain tears and rifts in it we know that a certain number of years ago there was a trading ship in the yellow sea the elizabeth robinson concerning the fate of which there is more mystery than is quite in accordance with either safety or respectability she was bound from hong kong to chemulpo and she never reached chemulpo but we also know that on her when she left hong kong there were two men presumably brothers whose names were noah quick and salter quick set down mind you not as members of the crew but as passengers also there was a chinese cook of the name of lo chu fen and there was another man who called himself netherfield and who hailed from blyth in northumberland he looked round the table evidently bent on securing our attention to their particular point we were all of course fully acquainted with the details he was unfolding but he was summing things up in quite judicial fashion and there was a certain amount of intellectual satisfaction in listening to a succinct resume one of us at any rate was following with rapt attention miss raven i fancied i saw why baxter or netherfield had already presented himself to her as a personage of a dark and romantic if deeply wicked and even blood-stained sort now continued lorrimore becoming more judicial than ever according to the official accounts as shown at lloyd's the elizabeth robinson never reached chemulpo and she is officially believed to have been lost with all hands during a typhoon in the yellow sea all hands but we know that whatever happened to the elizabeth robinson and to the rest of the crew certain men who were on board her when she left hong kong for chemulpo did escape whatever catastrophe occurred the elizabeth robinson may be at the bottom of the yellow sea and most of her folk with her but in course of time noah quick turns up at devonport in england in possession evidently of plenty of money he takes a licensed house runs it on highly respectable lines and comports himself as a decent member of society also he prospers and has a very good balance at his bankers so there is one man who certainly did not go down with the elizabeth robinson and now to keep matters in chronological order we hear of another a chinaman undoubtedly lo chu fen turns up at lloyd's and endeavours to find out if this elizabeth robinson ever did reach chemulpo there is a strange point here lo chu fen certainly sailed out of hong kong with the elizabeth robinson bound for chemulpo yet some years later he is inquiring in london if the elizabeth robinson ever reached her destination why did the elizabeth robinson touch at any port after leaving hong kong did lo chu fen leave her at any such port we don't know and for the moment it is not material what is material is that a second member of the company on board the elizabeth robinson did not go down with her in the yellow sea if as is said she did go so there are two survivors noah quick and lo chu fen and now a third is added in the person of another quick salter who turns up at devonport as the guest of noah 
and who like his brother is evidently in possession of a plenitude of this world's goods he has money in the bank is a gentleman of leisure and like noah a person of reserved speech lorrimore was now fairly into his stride and becoming absorbed in his summing up he pushed aside his glass and other table impediments and leaning forward spoke more earnestly emphasizing his words with equally emphatic gestures a person of reserved speech he continued but on one occasion at any rate so eager to get hold of information that he casts his habitual reserve aside on a certain day in march of this year salter quick with a handsome amount of ready money in his pocket leaves devonport saying that he is going away for a few days we next hear of him at an hotel in alwick where he is asking for information about certain churchyards on this northumbrian coast wherein he will find the graves of people of the name of netherfield the name of a man be it remembered who was with him and his brother noah quick on board the elizabeth robinson next morning he meets with mr middlebrook on the headland between almouth and ravensdean court and taking him for an inhabitant of these parts he puts the same question to him he accompanies mr middlebrook to an inn on the cliffs he asks the same question there and there evidently to his great discomfiture he hears that another man whose identity did not then appear but who we now know was only a casual traveller who was merely repeating salter quick's own questions of the previous evening which he had overheard at alnwick had been asking similar questions why had salter quick travelled all the way from devonport to northumberland to find the graves of some people named netherfield we don't know but we do know that on the very night of the day on which he had asked his question of mr middlebrook and of Clegg, the landlord salter quick was murdered and on that same night at devonport four hundred miles away his brother noah quick met a similar fate mr cassalette came back into the room he was carrying a couple of fat quarto books under one arm and a large folio under the other and he looked as if he had many important things to communicate but miss raven smilingly motioned him to be seated and silent and lorrimore with a glance at him which a judge might have bestowed on some belated counsel who came tiptoeing into his court went on now he said there were certain similarities in these two murders which lead to the supposition that far apart as they were they were the work of a gang working with common purpose there was no robbery from the person in either instance though each victim had money and valuables on him to a considerable amount but each man had been searched pockets had been turned out clothing ripped up in the case of salter quick we are familiar with the details of the tobacco box on the inner lid of which there was a roughly scratched plan of some place and of the handkerchief bearing a monogram which mr cassalet discovered near the scene of the murder these are details of great importance the true significance of which does not yet appear but the real prime detail is the curious mysterious connection between the name netherfield 
which Salter Quick was so anxious to find on gravestones in some Northumbrian churchyard or other, and the man of that name who was with him on the Elizabeth Robinson. And we are at once faced with the question, was the man, Netherfield Baxter, who left Blythe some years ago, the man Netherfield, described as of Blythe, whose name was on the Elizabeth Robinson's list? Mr. Raven treated us to one of his characteristic sniffs. He had a way, when he was stating what he considered to be a dead certainty, or when he was assenting to one, of throwing up his head and sniffing, with a somewhat cynical smile as accompaniment. He sniffed now, and Lorrimore went on, to a peroration. "'There can be no doubt about it,' he said with emphasis. "'A blithe man, a seafarer, named Solomon Fish, chances to be in Hull, and, in a tavern there, which is evidently the resort of seafaring folk, sees a man whom he instantly recognises as Netherfield Baxter, whom he had known as a child, boy, and young man. He accosts him. The man denies it. We need pay no attention whatever to that denial. We may be quite sure from the testimony of Fish that the man is Baxter. Now then, what is Baxter doing? He is evidently in possession of ample funds. He and his companions buy a small vessel, a twenty-ton yawl, in which, they said, they want to cross the North Sea to the Norwegian fjords. And who are his companions? One is a Chinaman, probably Lo Chu Fen. The other is a Frenchman, who, says Mr. Jallanby, the Hull shipbroker, was addressed as Vicomte. He probably is an adventurer, and a criminous one like Baxter, and he is also probably the owner of the handkerchief which Mr. Cassolette found stained with Salter Quick's blood. Lorrimore paused a moment, looking round to see how this impressed us. The last suggestion was new to me, but I saw its reasonableness and nodded. Lorrimore nodded back and continued. Now, a last word, he said. I personally haven't a doubt that these three, one or other of them, murdered the Quicks, and that they're now going to take up that swag which Baxter and the dishonest bank manager safely planted somewhere. But I don't believe it's buried or secreted in any out-of-the-way place on the coast. I know where I should look for it, and where Scarterfield ought to search for it. Where, then? I exclaimed. Well, he answered, the thing is to consider what those fellows were likely to do with the old monastic plate and the jewels and so on when they got them. They probably knew that the ancient chalices, reliquaries, and that sort of thing would fetch big prices, sold privately to collectors, especially to American collectors, who, as everybody knows, are not at all squeamish or particular about the antecedents of property so long as they secure it. I should say that Baxter, acting for his partner in crime, stored these things and has waited for a favourable opportunity to resume possession of them. I incline to the opinion that he stored them at Hartlepool, or at Newcastle, or at South Shields, at any place where they could easily be transferred by ship. He may indeed have stored them at Liverpool for easy transit across the Atlantic. I don't believe in the theory that they're planted in some hole and corner of the coast. 
"'In that case, what becomes of Salter Quick's search for the graves of the Netherfields?' I suggested. "'Can't say,' replied Lorrimore, with a shrug of his shoulders. "'But Salter Quick may have got hold of the wrong tale, or half a tale, or mixed things up. Anyway, that's my opinion, that this stolen property is not cached anywhere, but is somewhere within four respectable walls, and if I were Scarterfield, I should communicate with stores and repositories asking for information about goods left with them some time ago and not yet reclaimed. Good idea, agreed Mr. Raven, much more likely than the buried treasure notion. To which, however, I incline, I said stubbornly. When Salter Quick sought for the graves of the Netherfields, he had a purpose. Mr. Cassilette came nearer to the table with his big volumes. It was very evident that he had made some discovery and was anxious to tell us of it. "'Before you go any further into that matter,' said he, laying down his burdens, "'there are one or two things I should like to draw your attention to "'in connection with what Middlebrook told us "'before I left the room just a while since. "'Now, about that monastic plate, Middlebrook, "'of which you've seen the inventories. "'You may not be aware of it, "'but there's a reference to that matter in Dryman's "'History of the Religious Foundations of Northumberland,' which I will now read to you. Hear you this now. Abbey of Forestburn. It is well known that the altar vessels, plate, and jewels of this house were considerable in number and in value, but were never handed over to the custodians of the King's Treasury House in London. They were duly inventoried by the receivers in these parts, and there are letters extant recording their dispatch to London but they never reached their destination, and it is commonly believed that like a great deal more of the monastic property of the northern districts, these valuables were appropriated by high-placed persons of the neighbourhood who employed their underlings, marked and disguised, to waylay and despoil the messengers entrusted to carry them southward. N.B. These foregoing remarks apply to the plate and jewels which appertained to the adjacent priory of Mellerton, which were also of great value. So, continued Mr. Cassellet, there's no doubt, in my mind anyway, that the plate of which Middlebrook saw the inventories is just what they describe it to be, and that it came, in course of time, into the hands of the Lord Forestburn, who deposited it in yon bank. And now, he went on, opening the biggest of his volumes, here's the file of a local paper which your respected predecessor, Mr. Raven, had the good sense to keep, and I've turned up the account of the inquest that was held at Blyth on yon dishonest bank manager. And there's a bit of evidence here that nobody seems to have drawn Scarterfield's attention to. The deceased gentleman, it reads, was very fond of the sea, and frequently made excursions along our beautiful coast in a small yacht which he hired from Messrs. Capsticks, the well-known boat-builders of the town. It will be remembered that he had a particular liking for night sailing, and would often sail his yacht out of harbour late of an evening, in order, as he said, to enjoy the wonderful effects of moonlight on sea and coast. That you'll bear in mind, concluded Mr. Cassellet, with a more than usually sardonic grin, 
was penned by some fatuous reporter before they knew that the deceased gentleman had robbed the bank and no doubt it was on those night excursions that he and this man baxter that we've heard of carried away the stolen valuables and safely hid them in some quiet spot on this coast and there you'll see they'll be found all in good time and as sure as my name is what it is dr lorrimore it was that spot that salter quick was after only he wasn't exactly certain where it was and had somehow got mixed about the graves of the netherfields man alive yon plate of the old monks is buried under some netherfield headstone at this minute don't believe it sir said lorrimore it's much more likely to be stored in some handy seaport where it can be easily called for without attracting attention and if middlebrook'll give me scarterfield's address that's what i'm going to suggest to him i suppose lorrimore wrote to the detective but during the next few days i heard nothing from scarterfield indeed nobody heard anything new from anywhere i believe that scarterfield from blyth gave some hints to the coast guard people about keeping a lookout for the blanche flower but i am not sure of it however two of us at ravensdean court took a mutual liking for walks along the loneliest stretches of the coast myself and miss raven before my journey to blyth and hull she and i had already taken to going for afternoon excursions together now we lengthened them going out after lunch and remaining away until we had only just time to return home by the dinner hour i think we had some vague idea that we might possibly discover something perhaps find some trace we knew not of what then we were led unexpectedly as such things always do happen to the threshold of our great and perilous adventure going further afield than usual one day and about five o'clock of a spring afternoon straying into a solitary ravine that opened up before us on the moors that stretched to the very edge of the coast we came upon an ancient wood of dwarf oak so venerable and time-worn in appearance that it looked like a survival of the druid age there was not an opening to be seen in its thick undergrowth nor any sign of path or track through it but it was with a mutual consent and understanding that we made our way into its intense silence End of chapter sixteen